service. I always pray about. I know it's always a challenge. Um, I'm sure, Brother Kurt, your your pastor feels the same way. How long has he, Brother Norris been at uh, Franklin Road now? Twenty already. Twenty years. Wow. And uh, and so uh, Brother Brother Kurt and his wife are there on staff at a great church in Tennessee. And uh, it, I know that when you're pastoring and you've been somewhere for 20 years or longer, at Christmas time, there's only so much in the Bible, and uh, you're, you don't, you don't want to necessarily just rehash something. And so as I was studying uh, this, this past couple days, the Lord led me to this thought, and I want you to notice the verse here. I've entitled our Bible study tonight, uh, B.C. Christmas, Before Christ Christmas. And hopefully you'll, you'll see that, you'll get that tonight. And uh, so the Bible says here in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Everybody see the verse there? Let's read that verse together, all right? Here we go. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so as we get started tonight, uh, I was thinking about this portion of Scripture and all that goes along with it, and I was uh, reading this illustration, thought it was very fitting, about a man that was a very qualified TV meteorologist. Uh, how many of you uh, have seen somebody like this on television? I know when we lived in Tennessee, it was always a joke to watch the weather because they would say, well, today it might rain, today it might snow, you know, and it's like, I could be a weather man in Tennessee. I mean, it's, you can't be wrong the way they do the weather, but this man was a very qualified meteorologist, but he did a terrible job at forecasting the weather because somewhat of a, a his, his weather forecast became somewhat of a local joke when the newspaper kept kept keeping record of his predictions uh, that they did, actually did a story and they showed that this meteorologist had been wrong almost 300 times in one year. That's amazing. And what's even more amazing is somebody was counting all those times. But because of all the bad press, he was fired from his job and he eventually moved to another part of the country. He applied for a similar job at another news station and the job application asked him to state his reason for leaving his previous uh, job, employment. <coughs> his answer to that question was this, the climate didn't agree with me. <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing answer. Well, you know, the reality is, is that while it is difficult, if not impossible, for any of us to forecast the future. The Bible, as we study the Word of God, the Bible does have many things. It's packed with predictive prophecies. And if you listen carefully and closely when you are reading the Word of God, you can hear the sounds of Christmas even in the Old Testament of the Bible. And we're going to take a look at one of those places tonight. But you study the Word of God, and here's what you find when you think about Christmas in the Old Testament that it was written over a 1,000-year period, the Old Testament. The first part of the Bible contains about 300 references to the Messiah that were fulfilled in Christ. Uh, most of these prophecies were written down uh, more than 500 years before they were actually fulfilled by Christ. 
Uh, and, and when I look at those uh, facts, I realize that that was no accident, and it certainly was not a coincidence that all of that did take place. Uh, there was a man named Lee Strobel. He wrote a book, and he called the, the book The Cause for Christ, which goes right along with our theme we had for this year. But in his book, uh, Strobel points out that the probability of just eight of those prophecies being fulfilled is one chance in 100 million billion. <laughs> just the chance of eight of them. In other words, you talk about a long shot, you know, it might be that kind of a long shot for the Patriots to win the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> I better get back to my message and quit meddling, all right? But here's the thing is, is that when you, when you think about that, the, the possibility or the probability of eight of those, one chance in 100 million billion. When I look at that statistic, I think to myself, it just helps me to understand, gives me more confidence in the Word of God, that it is inspired of God, and that God's Word is completely trustworthy. We can trust what the Bible has to say. The Old Testament really points to the first Christmas, and what's amazing is when you get past the Old Testament, you find that the New Testament of our Bible fulfills what the prophets of the Old Testament were longing for, and that was Jesus. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Look at this verse again that we read together. The Bible says all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Now, you, you have to understand, and I don't have time to go all the way back into it, but we understand by the time we get to Genesis 3 that God has created everything that is in this world. We believe as Bible-believing Christians that God created this world in six literal days. There was no Big Bang or anything like that. There's, there was no evolution, which really is not a teaching of the Bible. Uh, it's sad they're teaching that in many universities across our nation today. But what we find when we come to chapter number two and then we get into chapter number three is that the crowning of God's creation was mankind. God created everything and then God created man and then, of course, he took the rib from the man, and he, and he created the woman. He brought the woman unto the man. He placed them in the garden, oftentimes referred to as paradise. And it's, it's Adam's fault and Eve's fault that we're wearing clothes tonight. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's Adam's fault that I'm having to wear a tie tonight. You know, I'm just going to blame everything on Adam. Usually Eve gets the brunt of it because she's the one that saw, took, gave it to him, but, you know, he was henpecked, and he just did what she told him to do. But, but here's the thing is, by the time you get to Genesis 3 in verse number 15, you've, you've already gone through, look at verse number 1 in chapter 3, how the Bible says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God hath made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So this dialogue is going on between, as the Bible identifies, the serpent and the woman. And so when we get to verse 15, we see this where God says, I will put enmity between thee 
and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. When you look at that verse there and you understand what's going on here in the word of God, this is the first promise that God has given us in his word after Adam and Eve had eaten that fruit that was forbidden of God for them to eat. It's the first promise that we see. Theologians oftentimes call this the proto-evangelum. It's fancy words, basically proto. If you're, uh, I met a guy one time, uh, I worked with a man one time years ago, and he told me that he was at the plant uh, in the 60s when they were, rolled the first three Corvettes off the line. And the first Corvette that rolled off, by the way, all three of them were white. And he said to me, he says, he says you know, the first car that they make is called the prototype. The first. And so he, when you think about this term here, proto, the first, and then the word evangelium, is what we use our word to evangelize. What this is, is it's the first mention of the gospel. The first time we see the Bible making reference to some good news. Because certainly what's happened in Genesis 3 is not good news until you get to verse number 15 because they disobeyed God. So oftentimes you see these words, which were, uh, at verse 15, which were spoken by God. They contain the earliest promise, think about this, of God's redemption in the Bible. Now look at the verse again. I will put enmity between thee and, thy, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, when you look at it at first glance, you, you, you look at it and you don't really see the Lord there. But can I tell you, Christ is in that verse. Uh, you don't always see the name. Some people don't believe the book of Ezra belongs in the Word of God. But again, you don't always see maybe the name of God or something like that in a particular, but you see the footprint, you see the hand of God in every book, every page, really every verse of our Bible. And when you think about this verse here, verse 15, look, it's clear to me that Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman that the Bible is describing here that he would one day come and he would crush the serpent's ugly head. Uh, that's who the Bible is describing here. And in the process of all of this, notice it does tell us that his heel would be bruised. That's what the Bible says here. His body, we oftentimes, when we have the Lord's table, his body would be broken. He would shed his blood. But when you look at verse 15, the verse predicts that Jesus would win the victory over Satan. Uh, but he himself, in the process, would be wounded. And it, again, you think about this story here, Adam and Eve, they, they were in the garden. They Look, God had given them a place that they could exist. They could have fellowship with him. They disobeyed God. They, they ate what they were not supposed to. And so what happened? Sin entered into the world. And the Bible says, and death by sin. Because of our sin, our sins separate us from God. So in the Genesis account in the garden, their first impulse, if you remember, was to hide. Oftentimes, that's, that's what we want to do is, you know, I remember years ago, I was over at my grandma's house, 
on my, on my mom's side of the family, I had 35 cousins. And when we got together, we got together. All of us were there. My grandmother was probably four foot four, four foot five. And I'm going to tell you something. I was scared to death of the woman. And, and uh, she had a sister. My grandma had coal black hair. Her sister had coal white hair. And my, my grandmother was, was Ruth, and her sister's name was Ruby. And, and it was like the, well, the good witch, and the, nonetheless. And, and we, were, we were playing like normal kids do. And I don't know if you've, I don't even know what it's called. It's one of those pots that's made out of clay that has all these openings all around it that, that these, these kind of bulbs or something grow out. You know what I'm talking about? She had one of those on her front porch, and she had been nursing this plant, and we were playing ball, and somebody threw the ball, went up on the porch, and it hit that thing, knocked it over, and broke it. And we did the best Humpty Dumpty thing we could do. I mean, we tried to stand it up. We tried to put all the pieces together, you know, and, and we thought we got away with it. Boy, were we sadly mistaken. And uh, my grandmother found that, and, and listen, honestly, just like Adam and Eve, what do we try to do whenever we do something wrong? We try to hide it. And we all know that you can't hide anything from God. You might be able to hide it from your spouse, you might be able to hide it from maybe other people in your life, but you cannot hide from God. And that was their first impulse. And then after they tried to hide uh, their sin from God, their second uh, impulse was to make excuses. You know, we're good at that, aren't we? Making excuses. I, I just love to hear all the excuses that, that many of these people in, that are supposed to be uh, ruling in our land for the people. And I love all the excuses that man comes up with. And by the way, it started as far back in the garden. And, and so what has happened, what happens here is Adam blames Eve and Eve blames who? The serpent, right? So, so then you get into a blame game. Everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else. And, and that is exactly what they did. No one was willing to stand up and take responsibility. And honestly, I have found in my life, although it's never easy, is that when we are wrong, the best thing to do is to be honest. Come clean. And that, that's why God gave us 1 John 1, 9 in the Bible. That if we confess our sins, that means to agree with God because God already knows what our sin is. And when we agree with God, then God says, okay, he says, the Bible says he's faithful, he's just, to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All. See, that, that's the best way, but that's not what we see here, is that the garden that was the glorious garden, that was a beautiful place, sin entered in, and it was sin that ruined Eden. Sin ruins our lives. Uh, sin makes a, a, a wreck out of our lives, and and what's sad is this, that in the process of what took place here in Genesis chapter number three, guess what the serpent's doing? He's sitting over there with a smile on his face. He's delighting in what's happened, that the woman and the man disobeyed God, and, and, and that God's having to deal with them. And, and when, you, when you look at it, and of course you study other places in the word of God, you find that this was uh, the, the serpent's plan from the beginning, was he wanted to show the whole universe that no race of human beings could ever be trusted to freely obey God. 
that if man is left to himself, he will self-destruct. We know that's true. You know, idleness is the devil's workshop. And by the way, you can't give the devil credit for everything. Uh, we have a nature. It doesn't take long before we start doing things that we shouldn't do, just like Adam and Eve did. And if we are left to ourselves, then we too will disobey. And that's what happened in paradise. That's what we see here. So when God, in Genesis 3, when God sees and knows what's happened, he begins to uh, survey the wreckage of the fall. God immediately, now again, this is where people think that God's a, a, a mean God and a bad God and God doesn't love us. But remember, God's just and God is holy. So what does God begin to do? He begins to deliver judgment. And God always begins where sin began. So notice here what he begins to do. He begins to deal with the serpent. Because remember, the serpent's the one that came to the woman. The conversation commenced from the serpent to the woman. This verse, verse 15, <clears throat> although, listen, that verse isn't directed to you and me, the, the application clearly could be to us. But notice that as we look at verse 15, who would you say is the speaker in verse 15 of chapter 3? It would be God. And let me ask you this, to whom is God speaking to? He's speaking to Satan. He's speaking to the serpent. Now, when we get into this study, I want you to think about that as we get into it, because again, the application could be made to us because we are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But this particular verse and this promise that we see in Genesis 3.15, and I know it's a little different for a Christmas message on a Wednesday night, but I think you're going to see how, how much this ties right into what Christmas is really all about. Because we find here that God is dealing with judgment. He's dealing with sin. He is speaking to the serpent in this verse. Now, back up one verse. Look at verse number 14 of chapter 3. The Bible says, And the Lord God said unto who? Unto the serpent. Because, look at this, because Eve hath done this. Is that what your Bible says? No, it says, because thou hast done this. Thou. Doesn't say Adam. Doesn't say Eve. It says thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. What did God do? God passed judgment on the serpent, and he did it for his part in the fall of humanity. That's what I clearly see. Now, first, again, notice what he says in verse 14. First of all, that the serpent is cursed above every other animal. That's why I hate snakes. I can't stand snakes. I mean, don't even come up to me with a rubber one. You know, I just can't, I can't. People that walk around with snakes, oh, look at this. I'm like, no, you're sick. The only snake, good snake is a dead snake. Well, it's not poisonous, Pastor. Who cares? I'm not going to ask it. You know, I, by the way, when you study all the pagan cultures of days gone by, what do many of them have in them? Snakes. My brother-in-law, boy, years ago, he got into snakes and reptiles. <clears throat> and he had one room 
you know, most people, when their kids move out, okay, they, parents kind of go through, I don't know if your mom and dad have done this yet, but parents kind of go through this, yeah, they're gone, and they turn the room into like a workout room or a man cave or something like that. Not my brother-in-law. When, when, when his oldest child moved out of his house, he turned that bedroom into like a reptile sanctuary and and I'm like I said to my sister I said I can't believe you are letting that in your house and she she's like and then I remember about six months after that she was I was talking to her one day and she says yeah she said Denny Denny hasn't been able to find one of his snakes for a couple months I'm like are you serious I've been over to your house why didn't you say something you know and she's like, well, they're not poison. I don't care. I want nothing to do with them. Make boots out of them. That's all I say, you know. <clears throat> but, but here's the thing is that God says you're going to be cursed above every animal. Secondly, he would crawl on his belly forever. And thirdly, he would eat dust <laughs> all the days of his life. Sounds like a good punishment for the serpent. And that's what we see. Now, when you get into this verse, notice three things tonight. And here's the first one. The text actually predicts a permanent conflict. There's a permanent conflict going on here. Again, look at verse number 15. Here's what it says. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. The word enmity actually means animosity, hostility towards... That's what enmity is. You, you think about the powder keg over in the Middle East, all these nations that have been going at it year after year after year after year after year. All of that you can trace back in the Bible. The hostility, the animosity, and the Bible here is telling us that, listen to this, Eve, the woman, and the serpent are never going to get along. That's what the Bible tells us. Eve Look, yes, she made a huge mistake, but she would never join in and be a part of what Satan is about. Now, again, some things we do by nature because we're sinners, but Eve made this huge mistake. Now, the word that the Bible uses here is the word seed. This is a great, uh, I wish I had more time to develop that aspect of it, but seed refers to the offsprings. You know, just like when I was uh, younger and my wife and I started to get serious. I'll never forget, we went out to see my, my grandpa, my grandma, and my dad's side. And my dad had two brothers, no sisters. And my dad was the middle of the three boys. And, and, and then, of course, my dad had three girls and me. My, my dad's oldest brother had two girls and no boys. Are you starting to notice the theme here? The youngest brother never married. So we, we get out there, here we are, I'm just going out to see my grandmother, my grandpa, and we get out there, and, and my grandma pulls my wife over to the side and says, now we're counting on you. She says, because if, if you don't give us a man-child, the name's going to end, you know, and I thought, grandma, put all that pressure on her, and what did we have? Four girls. <laughs> I, I did get a guy dog, you know, but, but here's the thing is, when, when you think about, it's talking about the offsprings of those that would, the, the seed, and it's making reference, you can, you can trace this, even the word of God dealing with men and women of the faith in every generation, 
who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It deals with the godly line that leads to Abel, to, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, Joseph, Moses, uh, Gideon, Ruth, David, Daniel, Esther. And eventually, as you study the Word of God, it culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's, it's an amazing thing when you look at this, how this conflict, that as you think about the woman's seed, now watch this, Satan also has a seed. And in every generation, in every race, in every time period in history, Satan has had his cohorts. He, he has had his that have been doing his bidding. Uh, when you think about this, here's a couple examples that came to my mind as I was studying the Word of God. Think about the story in the Old Testament, Cain killed Abel. And, and again, that sinful seed continued through the days of Noah. The wickedness of Noah's day, the Bible describes. Uh, who was it that threw Daniel in the lion's den? It was the seed of Satan that threw Daniel in the lion's den. Who was it in the Old Testament that hated the prophets and murdered them in cold blood? It was the descendants of the devil. Who came in the days of Jesus when Jesus was actually born it was Herod that actually tried to kill Christmas before it ever started. Herod did everything in his power. When Jesus began to grow up on this earth, there was a group of people known as the Pharisees. You know, isn't it sad when you study it out, if you look hard enough in the Word of God, there's a, there's a time period of silence between the Old and New Testament, about, about 400 years. When you study the Old Testament, there are some group of people that you find in the New Testament, in the gospel records, you didn't find them in the Old Testament. These groups actually came into being during that time period. And what's amazing is they're religious groups, but every one of them stood in opposition to Jesus. One of those groups was the Pharisees, the highest ruling religious body of the day. Nancy Pelosi was a part of it. And so, so what happens? Jesus is growing up. Now, the Bible says, says that he grew in favor and in stature with God and man. But yet, here's these pious gas bags of the day. They, they stand in opposition of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did they do? They plotted to take his life. The devil was not happy that Herod's plan did not work. And so, again, he doesn't just take vacation. The devil just doesn't roll over. The, Satan continues. He infiltrated the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Now, look, we all know that Jesus knew who Judas was, right? But the Bible says he filled the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, the Bible records that they stood in line to lie about him. They didn't have to look far for somebody to make up something. And by the way, there was nothing that you could pin on him because he was without sin. But Satan didn't stop. Pilate, remember as you read when Jesus was on trial, he offered to release Jesus. And what did they cry out? Give us Barabbas. They took a murderer over Jesus, the Son of God. Who was it behind the crucifixion of Jesus? The seed of Satan. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, beginning in Genesis 3.15, 
there is a permanent conflict that has always been there. And can I tell you that as you study, and we joke about it, but that struggle is still continuing to this day. And that struggle will continue. What's interesting is, listen to this, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent have opposed each other continuously down through the centuries. There's a permanent conflict. But notice, secondly, there will also be a temporary defeat. Let me say that again, a temporary defeat. They say, where do you get that from? Well, again, when you look at the verse, verse, verse 15, God says, remember, who's God talking to in verse 15? Satan. Now watch this. Here's what he says. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Now think about that. Bruise his heel. Heel troubles slow you down, but they don't kill you. That's what the Bible says. He will bruise his heel. In this life, there are times. How many of you would say there have been times in your life where maybe Satan has won a little conflict in your life? Anybody like me? There's been times where the devil has got a foothold. Sometimes we open the door, sometimes we allow it, sometimes Satan just takes liberties. But, but again, this is what we see is sometimes we are wounded. How are we wounded? Sometimes discouragement, criticism, anger, bitterness in our lives. Maybe, maybe it's dreams that we have that never come true. They never come to pass. Uh, maybe it's goals that we have set. Hey, listen, it's almost January. Try, time to set all our New Year's resolutions. So they can last for about four days. You you think about all of these things in our lives. And yet many times the bad guy wins a fair number of those battles. We we, we struggle in our lives. God's never promised that the Christian life is going to be a bed of roses. Yea, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's going to be times in our lives. And what, what the evil one does is, listen to this, he's a master at this. He uses repetition. He, he just continues to throw the fiery darts. He comes after us. I've always said that if he wants to get into the home, he knows that the best target is the dad, the father, the husband. And he's going to try to get to the husband, the head of the home, according to the word of God. And if, he can't, if, if that man is walking with God, then he's going to go to the next target, and that's the wife, the mother. If she's walking with God, then what's Satan's next target in the home? The children. He's going to go after the kids. Satan does not stop. He's looking for any advantage that he may get. And so he's going to use that. He's going to use excessive blows to break us down. But listen, I love it. When you study the word of God and you get to the word of God, when Jesus is going to Calvary and Friday about sundown, when they took the dead body of Jesus down from the cross, and was it dead? The Bible says he gave up the ghost. He breathed his last breath. When they took his body down, it appeared that Satan had won. Aren't you glad for Sunday? (laughs) Everything changed. 
Sunday morning, the true victor walked out of the grave alive from the dead. Satan thought that he had given the, the knockout blow, but he was wrong. And as we think about this, look, Satan is going to try to do everything he can to try to stop the work of God. You remember how he took the Lord into the wilderness and he tempted him three times? Jesus did not give in to those temptations. You know why? Because he couldn't stop short of the plan of God, the plan of redemption for all of us. All that he did, Satan, was to strike Jesus on the heel, according to Genesis 3.15. He struck him on the heel, as painful as it was, and the suffering that Jesus went through, it was nothing compared to what Jesus has done and will do to Satan. See, it's just a temporary defeat. Bruise his heel. But I love the third thing I see from Genesis 3.15. Look at this. There's a permanent conflict, yes, and a temporary defeat because he would bruise his heel. But look at this. There will be an eventual victory. Because look at this phrase in verse 15. He says, yeah, bruise his heel, but watch this, and thou shalt bruise thy head. Now, you think about heel wounds. Yeah, they're painful. They might slow us down, but they don't kill us. But no one survives a crushed head. A blow to the head is a death blow. And that's what the Bible's describing here, that the cross was God's death blow against Satan. Victory belongs to the seed of the woman. And, and that leads us to this question. I sat there and I thought about this, and I've studied this passage quite a few times over the years. If Satan has been crushed, and by the way, you say, well, isn't he still alive and well? Sure he is. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But according to God's plan, just like Jesus was the Lamb of God from the foundation of the world. If Satan has been crushed, why does he still uh, able to do so much evil in this world some 2,000 years later? And we know that if Satan is alive and well, because look what Job even said in his day. He says, the Lord said unto Satan, whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. He's on a short leash, folks. Satan's only doing great illustration, the life of Job. He's only doing what God's allowing him to do. And as I look at this, how there's going to be an eventual victory, how, how, how can a defeated being who was crushed by Christ, in this day we live in, exercise so much power? And the answer is, is that at the cross, Satan was judged. And his sentence was pronounced, right now he is free to roam around the earth awaiting his final execution. But Satan's destructive power on the earth, as we will see, we already see, we will see that it will grow even more fierce as the days go on. I'm getting to the point in my life, and I'm not even that old, where nothing really amazes me anymore. No matter what happens in this whole thing going on right now in, in, the, uh, in Washington, D.C., nothing surprises me. You know, you think about this world we live in, the sinful world, how dark it is, and I love the thought, the darker the night, the brighter the light. If there ever was a time, listen, yeah, I know Satan is the prince and power of the air, but this is a time for God's people to celebrate Christmas, but say, listen, right now there may be a few skirmishes here and there that Satan might be 
It, it might be appearing that he might be winning, but I'm going to tell you something. We've read the back of the book, and we know who wins. Satan has some freedom to roam, and he has some power that God's allowing, but in the end, he's going to be destroyed. And all those that are with him, all those that are following him, are going to be destroyed right along with him. You read in the Old Testament, when he was cast out of heaven, a third of the angels went with him. The same thing's going to happen in the end. Look, the Christian life, I guess I want to say it, and I don't want to discourage anybody tonight, the Christian life's going to always be a struggle. Just like the Bible describes the relationship between the woman and the serpent, you know, between her seed and the seed of the serpent. And, and the Apostle Paul, many times in, in his writings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he used many images in the Word of God to describe the struggle of the Christian life. He talks about the Christian life that we're as a runner, that we're as a boxer that is beating the air, that we're a wrestler, that we're a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life really does command our full commitment. You have to understand that you can't be a part-time Christian. God says, listen, if you're enlisted in my army, we, we're at war. Times are difficult. And the enemy is attacking on every side. What do we need to do? We need to fight the good fight of faith. As, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, our victories will not come without wounds. Anybody that's ever served, they come back from the battleground with some sort of wound, something that they've endured. And look, even think about Jesus, how the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah said, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If Jesus suffered in doing the will of God, if you and I are going to do the will of God, then we too will suffer. Look what the Bible says here in Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. How many of you are Christian tonight? If you say you're a Christian in this world we live in, and you live like a Christian ought to live, then according to Philippians 1.29, you will suffer as a Christian. There's no victory without wounding. There's no progress without pain. We're, we're going to experience many of these things. God's plan of salvation, you know what it was in Genesis 3.15? His plan of salvation was wrapped up in a suffering Savior. Jesus came to give his life. Genesis 3.15, I love the verse. It's the first mention of Christmas in the entire Bible. Never really looked at the verse quite like it as I spent time these last couple days, and if we're not careful, we'll miss it because we don't see the name Jesus there. But can I tell you again, he's there. He is there in Genesis 3.15. When the promise was given, no one would have predicted uh, the birth of of a baby in Bethlehem, and what started with the whole human race, notice what happened, it was narrowed down to just one individual, and that individual was the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice these phrases, and then we'll be done tonight, but in verse 15, look at it again, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and here it is, between thy seed and, notice, her seed, talking about 
your offsprings, Satan's offsprings, and her offsprings. Now, when you sit and think about that, the reference to her seed, that's kind of interesting because the male is considered to be the one that has the seed. But it says her seed. See, children are normally the offspring of their father. But it says her seed. Why does it say that? Because this verse is actually predicting the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's a great reference to the virgin birth. One of the cardinal doctrines of our faith, when the Messiah was born, he was the seed of the woman because his conception, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, the Bible says. There's no, there was no male seed there. He didn't come into the world the usual way. Jesus uh, came by means of the miraculous virgin birth. It's a wonderful thought when you come to this, especially at Christmas time, how that when God wanted to save the world, God didn't send a committee. God sent his son. And when God wanted to say, I love you, what did he do? He wrapped his love in swaddling clothes. Look, if we could have wrote the story, we would have never wrote it the way God did. It would have never happened the way God brought it to pass. But I love the story. Every time I read the story of Christmas, how he was bruised, but his bruising brought healing. He was pierced, but somehow through his piercing, it eased our pain. He was persecuted, but his persecution brought about freedom for us. He was dead, but yet through his death, it brought life to us. He was risen, and his risen life brings power to us. He reigns, and he brings peace to us. He is God. He is faithful. I am his, and he is mine. I love the thought of Christmas. Christmas is B.C. What does B.C. stand for? Before Christ. Remember what Jesus told him before Abraham was, I am. Again, think about this. It teaches us of the eternality of our God. See, when I look at Genesis 3.15, I see a permanent conflict. That there would be enmity between thy seed, Satan's seed, and her seed, Jesus. There's always going to be this conflict. And I see that there is, yes, a temporary defeat, that he would bruise his heel. But I'm glad that there's an eventual victory, that he would bruise his head. That's what Christmas is all about. Genesis 3.15, what a great thought. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening, for the wonderful truth of the Word of God. I pray that tonight you would use all that we've looked at and thought about maybe even some new thoughts from the pages of the scriptures, so many other prophecies throughout the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we did not live in the day where we were, as they were in the Old Testament, looking toward your coming. We have the privilege of living many years after you came. But I pray that you'd give us the same faith to believe as they had, knowing that you have been here. And Lord, we certainly, as we live on this earth, help us to live a life that is pleasing to you, that even in spite of the devil and the attacks, that we would remain faithful. 
Lord, we await your return. We look forward with anticipation to the day that you split the sky and you come back for your own. Lord, thank you again that we have the blessed hope that heaven is our home someday and that we will spend all eternity with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.